we always use this baseball analogy where if you hit three out of ten balls thrown at you, you're Babe Ruth. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're the best ever. If we find only three out of eight jumps, we think we're the worst rider of all time. You know, so there it, it is this odd perfectionist community. And unfortunately, I think social media has made that worse uh, because whether things are good or bad, it looks like no one has a struggle. Um, and that's not accurate or even intelligent when you think about it. You know, it's just, but it does create that feeling. Horseman's podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's episode is with hunter, trainer, and rider, and U.S. equestrian judge, Tom Brennan. There are two reasons why I wanted to speak with Tom for the podcast. The first is that he entered the sport in a very inspirational way. Starting out, he basically rode in a small local barn in Worcester, Massachusetts, and he didn't compete at all. After graduating from high school, he applied to Stonehill College, south of Boston, for its strong liberal arts program. He didn't even realize that the college had an IHSA team, but as soon as he learned they did, he signed up to be on it. By the end of his college career, he had won two individual championships at the IHSA Nationals, and he captained his team to the IHSA Team Championship title in 2003. Tom initially became a counselor for at-risk youth, but he decided to take six months to a year off and do something else. Uh, At that time, he connected with top hunter-rider Tony Workman, who was based in Virginia at Winter Hill Farm. Tom stayed there for several years, becoming a top hunter, rider, and trainer, until a few years ago when he and his wife Tracy, who is also a trainer, started their own Vineyard Haven Farm based out of their clients' stable, uh, and their clients are John and Suzanne King, and that is based in Round Hill, Virginia. So Tom's personal story is covered in the first half of the podcast. Tom is also a great teacher, I think in part because of his psychology degree. And he also has fascinating insights um, from his experiences of being a judge. So when we recorded this interview, uh, he had actually just finished judging at the USEF Pony Finals and the U.S. Hunter Jumper Association International Hunter Derby Championship in Lexington, Kentucky. So in the second half of the podcast, we talk about his approach to teaching, um, how he helps students handle their show day nerves, and what, as a judge, he sees riders having the most challenges with and how to overcome them. Some, he gives some really good practical advice uh, for training your horse. So finally, uh, near the end of the interview, he talks about safe sport. So in this podcast, there really is something for everyone, whether you're a student or a judge or a trainer. Before we begin, 
I am pleased to share that the Practical Horseman podcast is sponsored by ADM Animal Nutrition, and the link to their website is www.admequine.com. Now let's jump right into the conversation with Tom, where he starts by talking about his early years of riding, uh, basically how he started and what his lessons were like. What I can remember of them was uh, a lot of fun. Um, Lessons were once a week, uh, if that, only on school horses. There was a a very nice woman who taught me named uh, Bonnie Robinson, and um, she still comes and helps in the winter. She'll come down and help our kids or tell me I'm doing everything wrong and try to make me better, which I appreciate. Um, and it was all about the horse. There, uh, None of the people that I grew up around with horses had large competitive ambitions or showing ambitions. Um, I certainly had never seen a rated horse show or anything like that until I was an adult. Um, so in the absence of competitive goals, you really focused on learning about horses and trying to make things better from week to week. And, um, everyone was sort of in the same boat. You had an hour to try to figure out what you were working on the previous week. And then you thought about it for six days and tried to do it again. And, uh, so learning was slow. Uh, certainly repetition wasn't available. I mean, there were times where I didn't have any lessons. There were, um, you know, years where either it wasn't financially feasible or time or I had two very hardworking parents. Um, But if if you were in a program, it would have been a weekly lesson program. And um, they had good school horses that I remember. I remember falling off a lot. Um, but that wasn't that dramatic. It was sort of what happened. Uh, and, and you really looked forward to it because it was scarce. That instructor, Bonnie, I found out years later, um, was quite accomplished in her own right and had worked at Nimrod for Ronnie Much for a couple of years. And so although the setting was casual, the instruction was quality. Um, so I think you that's how you rode until you applied uh, to, to Stonehill College in Massachusetts. And I think you had said you applied there for a strong liberal arts program and you hadn't realized that they actually had a riding program. Um, and then you signed up for the team once you learned that it was available. Um, I guess, can you talk about the experience of riding on a college team and how that helped you evolve as a rider? Yeah. Um, well, and they didn't have a riding program, but they had a riding team. And more dumb luck, um, they it, there were no tryouts. You just signed up. Uh, your I think your lessons were paid for. You could ride twice a week if you wanted. Uh, they were very welcoming. It, um, the coach was Sheila Murphy. And her sister, Shirley Murphy, helped out there. And I've still stayed in touch with them as well. In fact, Shirley has a retired horse of ours. And um, and they were very passionate about college riding. They had started their own team when they were students. I think at BU. I could be wrong about that. Uh, and I really 
stumbled into a great group of people that didn't mind that I had no experience. And actually in the IHSA setting, that can be quite beneficial. I was very comfortable around horses, but they, they rank you in divisions according to the history of showing that you come in with. And I didn't have one. So I, uh, I think they were able to place me in levels that I could be very competitive at, at the time. Um, and a great group of people that I still stay close with today. I, I don't know if it developed me a lot as a rider. There's the obvious, you get to get on a lot of different types of horses and, you know, you sort of figure out, well, this is hard, but I can probably hold it together for eight jumps. <laughs> uh, but it, it definitely developed me as a business person and as an adult, um, because they were such a nice group of people. And, um, it's kind of the only time, at least in my life, that you get such a team component. We try to recreate that here on the farm uh, with the grooms, the vet, the farrier, the owners, myself, Tracy, my wife. Um, but that it was unique in school to be on a team like that, and it was very fun. You captained your team to the IHSA team championship title in 2003. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, I was co-captain and and a young lady named Vanessa Torelli, she's married now, but I would butcher her married name, um, was the other captain. And she wasn't able to go to nationals, but my biggest memory of it was when we came back to campus. Uh, The school year was about wrapped up. And she had rallied anyone that was left on campus to make posters and signs and things. And the whole entrance to Stonehill was covered. And they, someone must have, you know, we didn't have cell phones really, but someone must have alerted them that we were close because they were all waiting out at the entrance like a, like a parade. And that was a really special feeling because it wasn't just this accomplishment that um, you experienced with seven or eight people away from home. It really brought it back to home. Uh, so she was brilliant at that. And, uh, it, it was, it felt like really surreal at the time, you know, cause I didn't know if I'd ever go to a horse show again <laughs> after that. Um, and, and I didn't even realize that that isn't what horse shows are like, but it was special. And I take great pride in, um, Next year, yeah, 2020, I'm judging that Nationals. And that is a really bizarre feeling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You graduated from Stonehill Cum Laude with a degree in psychology and became a counselor for at-risk youth. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, the uh, Stonehill's south of Boston, and it's next to a town called Brockton. And Stonehill is great. The last semester of school, they'll set you up um, with a local position. And I worked briefly uh, in that role um, with people that really helped kids um, who had difficult lives at home, who didn't have much opportunity for stability, um, whether that meant nutrition or emotional well-being or physical well-being. Uh, the people I worked with were very, very good at 
really helping kids, but they were also very, very good at compartmentalizing that part of their life. And uh, when they checked out every day and went home to their family, they could separate those things. And I, I think at 21 or 22, whatever I was, I was far too immature to, to do that. And if you're not able to do that, I don't know that you can be so helpful to the people that need you. Um, so I was, in, I was planning on going to grad school and um, decided to take six months or a year sort of away to do something else uh, seemingly mindless um, to recharge, sort of. You connected with trainer, champion hunter-rider, and USEF judge Tony Workman. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, it was sort of organic. I worked off board. I had kind of this really nice rescue horse that um, I worked off his board at a farm in Medway, Massachusetts, with a lady named Kathy Haas. She was very generous and let me basically work to ride, and it was awesome. And uh, she had a massage therapist for her horses named Joanne Wilson, who does the U.S. eventing team, and or the horses on the team. And I had become friendly with Joanne, and she also worked on Tony's horses and now works on my horses. Um, and she said, well, if you want to go do something and really recharge, uh, my friend in Virginia is looking for barn help and it's sort of out of character for me. I'm a planner and uh, I like to have my ducks in a row, but I kind of just packed up the car and came down and met him. And uh, at the end of that summer, moved down here to work in the barn. I just took any opportunity they threw and Tony was very generous with those opportunities. Um, I think for whatever reason, he decided I was worth taking a chance on. And um, he promoted me within the barn to his own customers, uh, most notably Lynn Rice, who owns the farm where he runs his business. And she and he were just great about giving me chances. And, and they didn't take the chances away when I was messing up. Hmm. What have you learned from Tony? I would say almost anything I know. Um, he is a talented and gifted trainer. Um, I, I think that like anyone, you learn things that you really would, you see them able to do something you can't do, you know, and you focus on that. I think there were probably things that I already would tend to do, like being organized or um, focused or goal-oriented with customers. But he he was great at um, particularly young horses. I mean, just very, very good at understanding, bringing them along, pushing them at the right time, backing off at the right time. In the profile article we did in Practical Horseman about you, Tony said that from the beginning you really watched him ride, that every move the horses made and how Tony did it, you were there watching. Why did you do that? Uh, probably someone smarter than me told me to do it, but my, <laughs> but it was, a free, it was a free lesson. Uh-huh. You know, I, I still do that, whether it's um, I see Tony at a horse show or any other rider that I think is good at something. Um, even a bad rider is probably better than me at something. 
And I think that that's a common theme when you're growing up reading books or listening to podcasts or whatever. I think you'll hear that a lot, that people that do this watch each other and try to learn from each other and copy. We're mimickers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we don't know why, but you know, I had never seen anyone ride like him. Um, and I wanted to be able to do that. So it seemed like watching was a good idea. Can you tell us about the special horses in your career, including Gramercy Park and Purple Heart? Those are horses of a lifetime. Gramercy Park and Purple Heart are her- Gramercy was going to be great no matter who had him. Okay. No matter who had him, he was the, the shipper's favorite horse to ship, the farrier's favorite horse to shoe, the dentist's favorite horse. He was everyone's favorite horse. What made him their favorite horse? What about him? He just came out of the womb trained. He was perfect. <laughs> he wanted to do whatever you wanted to do all day. Uh, Purple was a little different and more special in that he had to choose all of us. He was quirky and uh, difficult and opinionated, and he had to decide that we were worthy of his talent. And um, Lynn has a gentleman named Aldo that's worked for her for a very long time, and Aldo and Tony hopefully myself, Lynn for sure, all the people that worked around that horse gave him enough respect that he decided he would do great things for us for many, many years. I think for six or seven years he went to indoors. What did Purple Heart do that makes you describe him in that way? The quirk? Yeah, like what? I don't know. He'd canter too high. He wouldn't change his lead at the beginning. He... um would be oddly spooky about things he saw every day. Um, he'd back up when you wanted to lead him down the barn aisle. He he just did these odd things. And then over time, he really decided we were all okay. And then he'd do anything for you. Mm-hmm. And um, it was great. What kept you going with him? I was young. <laughs> I don't know how why they all put up with it. <laughs> But Aldo and I were young, and he was so special. He was beautiful, an excellent mover by the end. Um, and I don't know that I'll ever see a horse jump like that again. He just was an incredible animal. And, and really, why not? I mean, what, you know, what else would we be doing? That's our job. Uh-huh. Um. Switching gears a little, you know, as we talked about, you didn't come up through the typical ranks, you know, as a junior doing the equitation finals. Um, kind of once you got onto the, the A circuit and riding nice horses, it, it sort of seemed like you came out of nowhere on the A circuit. What was that like? I don't know. I was just doing my job every day. <laughs> I, it didn't Showing feel up. it didn't feel like I arrived or came up or anything. It was just every day, you know, ride and work in the barn and. Um, one of the things that we used to do back then that we still do now is everyone does everything, Mm -hmm. you know, like we have a great group of guys that work here at, at the farm. Um, but right now I'm watching my wife get ready to drag the ring behind you and we all do all the jobs until it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, I came and rode seven or eight horses this morning, but I also pulled two mains and cleaned a few stalls and that's just the work of it. I mean, that is what it is. And you learn a lot, too, you know, when you're 
cleaning a stall, you might notice something about your horse's legs or feet that you didn't notice when you were trying to get them ridden before it was blazing hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it just seemed one foot in front of the other, and I was so tired. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so very tired for so long. <laughs> part, of the, part of the job. Yeah. yeah. We've uh, obviously talked about Tony a lot. Were there or are there any other mentors in the sport that you look up to? For sure, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, uh, certainly in governance and in judging, I have gotten to where I really appreciate Jeff Teal. Okay. Um, and he he's uh, an odd duck, that man, but he's very, very smart. <laughs> and he really wants what's best for the sport and the industry. Um, I've never seen him make a decision that's about him. Hmm. And I feel lucky we just finished judging derby championships together. Um, and we've done maybe three horse shows this year together. And uh, he's really impressed me. He has integrity and values and... So I look up to him. Um, I think Shelley Camp is one of the smartest humans on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a podcast with her. Uh, genius. And, uh, G- yeah, too smart. Dangerous smart. <laughs> um, I think she's great. There's a woman in Pennsylvania who has taken the time to become my friend. And through that, I have found her to be a really great sounding board and mentor named Sissy Wicks. Um, there's there so many people. Chris Wynn has been a real mentor. He got me my judge's license. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the mentor program. There, there are just so many people around. I mean, it's hard when every driveway is an Olympian, you know, to <laughs> to list. Right. Um, Joanne Wilson, mm-hmm. um, my veterinarian, Sean Bowman. They, you know, just listen to everybody. We went on a farm tour of Lane's End a big racehorse breeding place in Lexington, Kentucky on my day off last week. And this nice man who was, did not need to take any time to talk to us clearly works in the barn and has been there for decades, took so much pride in the horses that were there. He wanted to tell us about every one of them. He probably knows more about confirmation than anyone I've ever met. And he never leaves that barn aisle. So I think you can find a mentor anywhere if you're willing to listen. And now we're going to have a short break to bring you some information from Practical Horseman's podcast sponsor, ADM Animal Nutrition. ADM Animal Nutrition announces the relaunch of their Stay Strong product line. ADM's Stay Strong metabolic mineral pellets are a mineral, vitamin, and digestive supplement designed for starch-sensitive horses to help them receive needed nutrients without the extra calories and starch. ADM's Stay Strong 33 Ration Balancer is a pelleted protein, vitamin, and mineral product designed for horses that need additional protein, such as growing horses, broodmares, and the high-level performance horse. Learn more and find a retailer near you at www.admequine.com. And now, back to our conversation with Tom Brennan. Um, moving into... The- area of teaching, um, drawing on your psychology degree, you mentioned uh, in a training article, well actually this is I think the profile, that you spend a lot of time examining small failures in riding. 
and you talked a little bit about how you get riders to think about failures differently. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like as a, you know, as a coach to amateurs and juniors, and everybody can be pretty hard on themselves. And oh, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we always use this baseball analogy where if you hit three out of ten balls thrown at you, you're Babe Ruth. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're the best ever. If we find only three out of eight jumps, we think we're the worst rider of all time. You know, so there it, it is this odd perfectionist community. And unfortunately, I think social media has made that worse. Uh, because whether things are good or bad, it looks like no one has a struggle. Um, and that's not accurate or even intelligent when you think about it. You know, it's just, but it does create that feeling. And I think that if you fail to recognize that what you, most people label as a failure is just a lesson learned, um, you know, we're not throwing a ball at, at the horse doesn't respond to physics. It doesn't respond to aerodynamics. It doesn't respond to geometry the way other sports do. They can say no. They have fear. They wake up grumpy. They might be a little sick that day and you don't know it. Um, whatever that is, it makes a lot of it out of our control. And those uh, quote-unquote failures should be relabeled as lessons or stepping stones. And I, I try to get people to step back and realize the small victories. If you go back to how I said when I was a kid, without show ambition, you were forced to set goals about performance. Mm -hmm. And if you can get people to look at it that way, yes, you, you did not perform well today, but that right lead approach to the single that he has been crooked at for eight months, you finally had him straight. Mm. That's a piece. And the amount of mental energy that is spent on thinking of something as a failure will really defeat you. Um, a very good amateur rider that we have on a very nice horse, um, we went to Lexington two weeks ago, the first day, there was a four to a two, and it was set quite tight. And in a perfect world on this horse, you'd like to get to the two in a place where you can leg him. But it was so tight that that opportunity wasn't going to be available. And she went in, and he has a huge, beautiful stride and got there way too early, and he could not get his legs out of the way. He jumped a terrible jump. And I don't know what the, her score was, but off the top of my head, it was probably a 70. I don't, I don't know. The rest of it, she rode nice, and she rode that nice. And I had to leave to go judge Pony Medal Final, and she was showing the next day with Tracy. And I, she's a mentally very tough competitor, but just like anyone, you can be tough on failure or tough on success, and it's your choice. And definitely recognize things that aren't working and fix them. But I said to her, the only mistake you can make tomorrow is to try to change your ride. You rode great. It didn't work out. Go do the same thing tomorrow. Trust the program. Trust the practice. Trust the preparation. A mistake happened. That's all. And if you're not able to let it go, it will hold you back. Hmm. And, um, and hold you back just because... 
you psych yourself out. And you're not reacting to what's underneath you in that moment. If you're riding the horse you had yesterday, you're late. Mm -hmm. You're missing it. You're missing it. You have to figure out what you've got that day, what they're offering, what they're not offering, what you can ask of them, and what you can't ask of them. And that's our job as trainers to communicate that to you in the moment. But it would be a mistake to think something like that is going to just repeat itself and you need to do more. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if it's, I know my horse is scared of red flowers and they're red flowers, I'm not saying don't consider that. Mm -hmm. But work on it at home, figure it out the best you can. Hold your horse's hand and help him as a teammate would. Maybe not punish him as a as a prison guard would. <laughs> you know, they do so much for us. And, and I think if you focus on that failure, they will, you can't hide anything from them. They will feel that anxiety or that nervousness or that stress about it. And it becomes self-fulfilling. I think you had said um, in the article, lose a class, but don't lose the lesson. And, uh, I like that. <laughs> Who said I that? I too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's exactly what I was just saying. Yeah. The class doesn't matter, but long term, you'd like to learn how to, you better believe that four to two is going to be built at my farm here. Mm-hmm. We're not losing the lesson. That's, yeah. That's right? We, we had just come off Upperville and Loudoun with these big open galloping fields that we show in, right? Rings, mm-hmm. uphills, downhills. And we had prepared that horse very well for that. I expected more of the same in that show. I did not prepare for a very tight forced ride at the end of a course coming home. Mm-hmm. That won't happen to me again. I lost that class for my lady, but I will not lose that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a great, great point. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to teaching? Kind of just coming from my psychology background, they learn through experience much faster and better than they do um, through dictation. Uh, And so whether it's a quiz or some task at a horse show, um, it's sort of like when we build a gymnastic for a horse. We let the gymnastic teach that horse something Mm -hmm. about his own body or his own balance or his own timing. And we want to do the same thing with the younger riders too. So they might not think in their lesson that when they're out there in the field making circles or counter cantering or going up the hill or coming back down the hill, they might not realize all the balance. I'm not sitting there saying, now balance yourself. They just have to. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I think being creative about how you determine what a rider or a horse needs and can you get them to learn that where it's their idea, maybe out of necessity, maybe out of creativity, but but it's them, they'll own the lesson much longer and, and get it more quickly than if you just walk into the ring, in my opinion, if you just walk into the ring with a dry erase board and say, today you will um, not lean forward, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you'll mm-hmm. sit back. Or you, if you can find a way to create the habit where you never even had to tell them that, then you're doing a good job. It might make the people on the outside of the ring wonder what the heck you're doing, <laughs> but that's why you have your job and they have theirs. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, and how do you help students become more confident? That's a tough one because it's person to person. 
Um, I think it's just like helping a horse become more confident. Some of them find confidence, again, through experience, doing things over and over and proving to themselves they can do it. Some of them gain confidence by pushing them past where they're comfortable and realizing, wow, I, I didn't know I could do that. Some of them gain confidence by coddling them and holding them a little longer than you would at one level. Before And a lot of that is just gut feeling and, and trial and error. Did it work? Did it not work? Um, I find if there's one rule of thumb I could give about confidence, it's to make sure I never answer a question until I'm sure of it. And when I do answer it or make a decision, I don't project any doubt. Because by that point, I shouldn't have any doubt. And it, even if they're lacking a little confidence... If they can just stay right with me and know that I am 100% sure, uh, then that gives them some comfort. And also it makes me really consider my decisions. Okay. Maybe a, a similar type of question, but how do you help your students control their nerves on show day? Um... So nutrition's huge on that. Uh, the kids tend to be terrible about eating and drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, some parents are really good at keeping an eye on that. Sometimes we have to keep an eye on it. Um, Tracy and one of our customers, Melissa, seem to be really good at hospitality. <laughs> and so there's always food and drinks and stuff. And yes, it's a nice benefit, but it's not without purpose. Um, so I, I think nutrition fuels the machine. Uh, if they get tired, you know, you have to watch what time of day people are showing and kids are showing and horses are showing. Visualization really helps. Uh, practicing things at home before they get there. You know, it's it's trial and error for sure. Some people have found they're good. They want to be by themselves before they show. Other people want to almost purposefully be late so that they don't have time to worry about it, you know. Um, everyone's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um this is, uh, going back, we were talking a little bit about social media, but um, you recounted a story of how around 2014, a photo of you had been posted on Facebook and there were some negative comments. Um, and the next morning you posted a printout of the comments in the Winter Hill tap room, along with a notice to the kids in the barn. And I, I just wanted to read it, I, or some of it, because I thought it was it was really great that you did this. Um, you know, it pointed out that the round was an 88% that I guess the photo was taken from. And you wrote, uh, you will meet many experts in life, quote unquote experts. Most of them sit on the sidelines where it is safe to say they are not good enough. The only one who can tell you you can't is you and you don't have to listen. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I guess why, and, and it went on a little bit, you know, more words of wisdom, but why, one, why did you feel the need to do that and, and kind of make it, a, I guess, a teachable moment? I think at the time I was at that horse show with about 15 horses and probably 10 of them were being ridden by young girls mm -hmm. who ranged from maybe 12 or even younger, maybe 11 or 12 to 17 they have enough self-doubt, um, concern about how they look, about how they sound, about whether they're good enough at anything. Um, 
that it just felt like something had to be done. And it didn't hurt my feelings at all. I mean, I couldn't care less. If you're going to, if you're going to do this, you better have a thick skin. Um, but I think it was something they were all aware of. They had seen it. Uh, I, I think that was Facebook. Right. I, I, yeah. Um, they had seen it. And some of the comments were truly vicious. I mean, yeah, I remember I mean the vicious. <laughs> um, the worst of social media. The worst of social media. Uh, yeah. And that was pre-election. Um, <laughs> and I think to just act like it hadn't happened maybe wasn't the right approach. Because they... I think the kids, when they ride with you, even when they hate you, they look up to you. And maybe seeing how I dealt with it would help them deal with it because an attack on me was felt like an attack on them to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just was so ridiculous and childish that it needed, I think you shine a light on things like that sometimes and, and the transparency of it can really take away its power. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't remember writing all that stuff. I think at least one of those lines is actually from Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, But, you know, it's, we really enjoy what we do with horses and with people. um, But it's never worth feeling awful about yourself if you're trying to do the best you can and learning. And I, I just remember thinking that that morning, we could have a good day or a bad day, but it wasn't going to be up to someone sitting behind a keyboard about whether it, which day it was. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Really good advice. I think. It's, yeah. It doesn't get any easier. <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. Um, switching uh, gears a little bit. Uh, you helped the Pennsylvania national horse show launch the Claire Maudsley scholarship and rider recognition program. Um, can you, and I think you're still involved in it. Sure. I was on the website kind of looking around. Um, can you talk about the program and you know what it is and why it's important? I would love to. Um, so I actually just joined the board of directors for the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. And I'm thrilled because hopefully I can promote the program a little more. The idea was that we live very close to indoors. And we were seeing junior riders set that as a goal they get there, and you tend to have every generation of rider, every three years or so, there's two to three kind of professional juniors who seem to just rule the world. They fly all over. They show other horses that are for sale or a trainer owns them or whatever, and they have an important space in our sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go there and your junior rider is, let's say, fourth, or sixth, and you watch the ones that are in front in, of in them the in the order, uh, not in the order of go, in the results. Oh, okay. okay. In the results. And you see who was first, second, third, fourth, whatever. And you think, okay, you kind of just won. Like of the normal, quote unquote, people who are competing in your junior division, meaning they go to school, <laughs> they might have other activities that they do. They show... 10 to 15 to 18 times a year, roughly once a month, maybe twice a month, not 50 weeks a year. Um, So we decided to start a program that tracks those kids who go to brick-and-mortar schools. That seemed to be the deciding factor. 
and we have an attendance requirement, we have a conduct requirement, it's free for them to apply. We give out $5,000 a year in scholarships, two scholarships, and um, they have five years to use it, and it gets paid directly to a school of higher education, trade school, whatever. And it's been great because it recognizes, uh, normal seems like the wrong word, but it recognizes the normal kids who are successful and doing very well. These aren't lesser riders, um, but, you know, they tend to own or lease one horse. They might not have five or six chances. And so we wanted to reward them somehow so that they didn't just go once and not come back. Uh, so they get brought into the ring. They get championship coolers, championship ribbons, oh, nice. big checks for a lot of money. And they get their moment um, to, to reward them and say, we appreciate how well you're doing in our show environment and also attending school mm-hmm. and also going to prom, you know, developing as a person, not just showing all the time. Right, kind of living on the, the A circuit. Literally, not kind of. I mean, some of these kids don't go home. And, and again, there's a place for them with that. Mm-hmm. But it, it seemed like an opportunity to reward um, well-rounded junior riders and Claire, who it's named after, Claire Modsley, was a young lady I knew that worked for us and um, passed away in a car accident. And she was that kid. You know, she worked her butt off and did a lot of things. She was well-rounded. And I think it's a, it's a nice compliment to who she was. Um, we've talked a little bit about judging, but and you've just come off a, a long string of judging, including the USHJA International Hunter Derby Championship in Kentucky. Um, why did you decide to become a judge, and what do you like about it, and what do you find challenging? Uh, Chris Wynn was a little pushy, to tell you the truth. Um, I think diversity in your sport is important and in your industry. Tony supported it at the time, too. I think everyone should judge. I really do. It will change how you exhibit and what you value. You'll never complain about a judge again. <laughs> um, I I think it would be eye-opening for everyone to do. And what they find eye-opening? That you want nothing more than for everyone to do well. You are craving all day to, to reward good horses and good riding. And their judges, I think, are really in your corner uh, almost all the time. Um, what I find good about it's nice to see other trends in other parts of the country. The travel is by far the worst part of it. It's exhausting. Um, it's sort of a lonely lifestyle. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't hang out with your friends who are exhibiting. Uh, you know, you're kind of sitting still. We're active people, and sitting all day is, it kind of, it makes me feel a little crippled. Um, But I I think it's more rewarding than it is not. Um, And I think that it really brings home a lesson. I've had several people here say, every time you come home from judging a show, you've learned something that you're trying to push on us. And I hadn't really noticed that until they said it, but it's absolutely true. 
You mentioned that as a judge, you get a lot of criticism. How do you handle that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, and or second guess I don't know if they think that you can't hear, but there's a lot of hand throwing and, you know, head shaking. And it always yeah, makes sense. Of course. Yeah. And it always <laughs> makes sense to you. You're not trying to get it wrong. And I do think people with the advent of live streaming and good commentators, I think people are becoming more educated in the idea that the horse show a judge is watching from the 50-yard line is not the same horse show you're watching from the end gate. Um, and if you don't sit there and watch the whole class. Um, I think open numerical scoring leads to most negative feedback. You're either scoring too high, you're scoring too low. Um, I don't score anything unless the class requires it or the horse show requires it. I'm very comfortable with scoring, but it's not my preference. I think most people are very happy to hear that they won a class, but if they won the class with a 75, they might not be that happy. Um, so I, I would like to see people understand scoring more, especially at the end of a class, the, the last third or so of a class, your score is not particularly indicative of your performance. Your placing is, but the first two-thirds of that class, the scores that came before you, dictate where you land. Mm -hmm. um, if I think you're second, let's say your horse went great and you were the first one in the ring and I can give you a 90. Awesome. But let's say you're the last one in the ring and your horse went just as well. And I think you're second and the top place horse I, gave, I happened to give an 88 to, I have to give you an 87. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it doesn't mean, you, that, it doesn't mean your round wasn't as good as the 90 it would have been when you went first. But it does mean that other horse, when they came in and said the 88, I would have had to give them a 91. And um, that can be frustrating to exhibitors. Speaking as an exhibitor. You know, I last week I got an 88. And yeah, or or you hear this a lot. You hear that wasn't an 85. Oh. No one says it is. They're just saying it was third. Interesting. That's it's like a whole mindset you have to as a judge. I well, I hope all judges uh, address it like that. Mm -hmm. It would be a mistake to score the round and then let that score place it. Mm -hmm. You should place the round and then determine the score that's needed. In my opinion. <laughs> okay, so Tom, um, you did some training, uh, well, actually a training article uh, for a practical horseman a few years ago, and you talked about as a trainer and a judge that a common challenge that you see adult amateurs and amateurs have is that they go slow and get close to the jumps. Um, I think that's what you meant, and that riders, you know, they tend to be hesitant and underpaced. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I think probably what I was referencing is my symbol when I'm judging for slow close um, is my most frequently used symbol on the first jump of a course, especially in, in adult amateur classes. Um, and it And it is a cautionary ride. It's a, a little bit of a backwards ride. And uh, it's not a new phenomenon, uh, but actually, I think it's getting worse. Um, 
and you are seeing it elsewhere in our sport too, uh, there's a trend, I think, and all of this is opinion, um, but for me, I, I've never been the most accurate of riders. I, I work at it. I think about it, but but pace will give me options. Pace will straighten my horse. Pace will present an image to the judge that I'm confident, that I'm prepared, that I'm ready, that I want to go jump the jumps. Mm -hmm. There is a trend of things being so manufactured, so slow, so cautious, so controlled that I get the feeling that people think they're trying to fix everything and in doing so they're ruining everything. And so um, I wonder if some of it is the nature of an adult amateur who typically is not someone that can ride a lot. They don't get to practice a lot. They're often people who are working very hard to afford this sport. And they're nervous. And they're timid. They don't want to get hurt. They've got to go to work the next day. They, so I think it comes from that most often. But even more so than that now, I think when they watch a lot of professional divisions, or I just had Betty Orr in my head correcting me, open divisions, <laughs> that they're seeing it there too. Okay, so it's a uh, yeah, yeah. Now, not among the top. Um, you know, you see someone like Jenny Karazisis, who's, I think, one of my favorite writers to watch, Jim Bowersox, certainly Scott Stewart. Um, these people are masters at going forward. doesn't mean they're going fast, but they're going forward all the time, intent to the next jump. Um, but a lot of very good professionals are following this direction, too, of being so cautious. And, and it can become a difficult thing because when we're judging... Our job is just to compare all those horses that showed up that day in that round. And we're, you're cognizant of adding value. You're saying, this is what it should look like. This is what it should be. And sometimes those people ride so well that they are still the best that day. But for an average rider on an average horse who doesn't get to practice a ton trying to mimic that when we go back to what do you mimic and what do you watch and what do you copy, trying to mimic that is a fool's errand because it doesn't work out. It creates slow, close, weak jumping, putting in too many steps. We used to have this phrase, um, which I said it to a learner judge this summer and they went cross-eyed, called walk the ends. That's, that, that was a major flaw when you're walking the ends. It means you're not going anywhere. Get going. And so I, I think that it's, it's spreading. I, I really do. Okay. Um, so at the time, you know, for the article, one quote that uh, you said, and it was perhaps the biggest difference between amateurs and professionals is that amateurs, quote, wait until it's time to go, whereas professionals go until it's time to wait. I guess, can you talk about that? Although, now you've talked about some professionals. I still agree with that. Yeah, I think 
maybe instead of saying the biggest difference between amateurs and professionals, I should say the biggest difference between medium riders and great ones. Um, yeah, the, the, fault, the fault or the trap that someone might fall in is to be backwards, patient, adding slow, 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 because they're worried they won't see a distance. I think there's a lot of focus on distance, which is unfortunate. Um, I would love the focus to be on jump. And definitely a good distance gives you the best chance for a good jump. Uh, but just last week, there was a little horse named Red Rider. Pretty much missed a jump. Jumped incredible in the derby. And I was paired with Danny Robertshaw that day. We gave him a 92. I don't really care that he missed. I thought it jumped out of its skin. It never lost pace. It was smooth. It just didn't come up perfectly. Um, anyways, so in an effort to be perfect about the distance, they try to create time for themselves to, and go slower and slower. And then they see it, and they go get it. And it's very visible. It alters the horse's balance. It ends up not being such a great jump anyways because the horse is in an acceleration and a flattening mode. Um, they don't have the, t the power behind it to pause and slow down. Alternatively, someone like Jenny Karazisis is going to gallop up there whether she... Now, chances are she saw it when she got out of bed this morning. <laughs> but that's because she's done this so many times in the right pattern that her eyes had a chance to develop. So she, whether she sees it or not, she's going to go forward, she's going to go straight, she's going to be in good balance. And she's either going to continue right on that stride or back off a hair so the horse has time to jump a higher, slower jump. And that is a difficult skill. You've got to be brave, mm -hmm. and you've got to practice it. However many times you've waited to see that you should go, you have to, that many times, go until you see you should wait before your eye will start to correct. Mm -hmm. And um, I think from a judging point of view... It's a, if you're really a geek about it, um, and I try to push people that learner with me to think about this, and they say, well, it, it chipped, or it was long over there, or something like that. It's not just counting mistakes. Where can you give points? And when I see a rider come out and ride confidently, I can give them points. And I ask those learners, Why? Always ask why when you're judging. And they say, well, what do you mean? Well, why is a chip bad? Why is the long distance bad? Why is a good distance good? Why do we care that it's a good distance? And that usually turns into a full day discussion while we're sitting there. But if you push people to that, I think the answer tends to be, because that's typically where a horse can jump the best jump. And when we say the best jump, we're really saying the safest jump. So if your horse can be at a less than ideal distance, but is in good balance and is in str a straight path and can jump a good, beautiful jump like Red Rider did last week, why would I fault him? What's the error? Tell me what the error is. Well, he, he was too deep. He didn't think so. He jumped incredible. <laughs> he didn't get that memo. <laughs> yeah. Are we saying, 
that we penalize the miss because it's a miss, I think the more correct thing is to say we penalize the miss because it produces a bad jump. Okay. For me. That, that might be that's... way off the rails. So. <laughs> I think that's... No more judging jobs. <laughs> I think that's, that's uh, actually a fascinating way to look at it. Um, and I guess, you know, this might be getting kind of too much in the weeds, but, you know, what is it about pace and straightness that helps and, and track that helps a horse produce the best jump, typically? Typically, it gives them the opportunity to have energy stored, stored energy in a straight direction. The straightness creates square form, square legs, square behind, uh, not shifting. So if their trajectory is straight from takeoff in the air to landing, then their bascule is centered over the jump, and that's the safest place for a horse to clear an obstacle without hitting it. Why do we penalize hitting a jump? Sounds dangerous. Uh, the, the pace of it, though, I think speaks to a horse being relaxed, being able to look in front of itself, being eager. All of these things in a horse out in the wild make it more athletic mm-hmm. and, and focused on its job. Instead of focused on the ride it's receiving, focus on the task in front of it. In the training article you did with Practical Horsemen, you also mentioned that riders showing in the 2 foot to 3 foot 600 divisions merely need to arrive in the vicinity of a good takeoff spot to give their horses the opportunity to jump a fence well. Those riders need to focus on establishing the right rhythm, pace, and track, and then relinquish control of the distance. Relinquishing control of the distance seems easier said than done. So how do you get your students to do that? Well, some of that is osmosis. So they will find that I almost never talk about it. It's not that I don't address it and work on it, but they're never going to come out of the ring and I'm going to say, wow, you were six inches too long there. That's really pathetic and that's too bad. We're going to talk about how do we get our horse to have that in his wheelhouse that when we are six inches too long, it can still jump well. Um, I'm going to talk about their approach to the jump, their ride to the jump, their balance at the jump, but I'm probably not going to talk about the distance. I'd rather give them the information why that distance happened than just address that it happened. Um, or if I think they should do something differently, I want to talk about that. But the I can affect the outcome by manipulating the ride rather than focusing on what outcome happened. Um, in words. So, so through osmosis, they, they just follow my lead there. If, if it doesn't come up in the way that I approach it, they kind of forget to worry about it. Well, deliberately, am I going to sit there and say, that's not a distance? Or am I going to sit there and say, maybe if we had come forward back in the corner and held our right rein while the horse was drifting, we would have a better outcome. Those are things that people always do better when you tell them what to do than when you tell them what not to do. Do you have a favorite exercise to work on the skills of rhythm, pace, and track? Well, definitely getting out of the ring helps. I like setting really low. Our horses don't jump high very often, 
but low obstacles where people don't have to worry about the safety of it or you know if you're jumping three feet on a amateur owner horse that's you're not going to get hurt you know and be a little daring and because if they practice that then that in theory it'll become habit um i like strong focal points long approaches and departures we talk a lot about departure from the jump here um that's another trend i guess you might say i think the great rider how did i say it to someone good riders ride up to a jump really well but the great ones ride away from the jump really well um it's the approach to the next jump. From the first step you land, you're on the approach to the next jump. And again, habit. Is that horse in a habit of being straight between your legs? Or is it only straight between your legs till it jumps and then you let it land and go wherever it wants? Um, sets it up for a lead change or whatever comes next. In the training article, you also mentioned something I thought was helpful and that is the importance of turns and looking through the turns so can you talk a little bit about why that is important and what riders can do to improve their turns i think figuring out where to turn is a good start um, in the article i think we talked about seeing the standards on the out of the line come in a view so that's a, a great exercise they could reference um, i think being consistent about going forward through the turn helps a lot. Riding your horse, it, you might not think you're working on turns, but keeping your horse off the rail of your ring, off the fence line, or riding out in the field in open space will help your turns immensely. Because so often people think they're doing fine, and then they turn off that fence line to go to a jump somewhere, and then all of a sudden they can't keep track of the horse. And it's because that horse has been leaning, quote unquote, leaning on that fence line for straightness, for balance, all the way through until you got there. So getting away from long, parallel structures <laughs> that can support your horse unintentionally will help your turns. You said that as a judge, people tend to go to the first jump too slow. Do you have any tips for them to avoid this? Everyone's a little different. Sometimes horses go in and feel a little different. But I think that you want to talk about the idea of having already jumped a few. I mean, you did just leave a warm-up area. In theory, you warmed up. Um, and a lot of times just talking to people about it. Um, a amateur I helped last year had a real hard time with it. And for whatever reason... One time she was walking in the ring, and right as she walked past me, I said, let's just not sit on eggs or walk on eggshells to the first jump. For whatever reason, that clicked. Huh. And she said, you're right. I've been sort of this tentative, what's going to... And then she would start riding after the first jump. And that was last October, I think. We were at Harrisburg when I said that. And... It almost got boring to keep saying how good the first jumps had been. I, I mean, she it, for whatever it just flipped a switch in her head, and now it's it's not a problem. So, some of the onus is on us as trainers to figure out what works 
for that person. Um, one young lady, that a junior that we help, in the hunters, she's great about the first jump, but in the equitation, I think she's trying to be so perfect and still and she's always behind the tempo to the first jump. And one thing we've talked about her with was a visualization when she picks up the canner. Do you remember the old um, Kool-Aid commercials where the pitcher of Kool-Aid busts through the brick wall? She has to picture that, that she is cantering through a brick wall and break through it as soon as she picks up the canner. And, and it's just this visualization of go forward and then deal with it when you get there. Um, one thing that helps a lot of people is to not assess or try to measure the distance to the first jump until they're very close to it. Because um, often the first jump is your longest approach. And uh, so we might give them a marker and say, don't even gallop forward and confidently and don't even try to measure that jump until you've passed X or the oxer or the red flowers or whatever. You have been involved in the USHJA and the USEF for quite a while. Why did you feel it was important to get involved in the sport? And what are some accomplishments in those organizations that you are proud of? Um, it's a it's a important and frustrating thing to do. Um, I'm not uh, as involved at USHJA as I was, but I'm still on the task force for the Green Incentive and Derby programs. I really believe in them. I'm very proud of what those programs have done for the sport and for the industry. Um, I think it's developed a new type of hunter. To tell you the truth, I think it's rewarded owners, which, geez, that only took a hundred years. You know, um, I saw some statistic that I think the Derby program has paid out $14 million um, in about 11 years. So that's good to give back. Um, I would like to see more support for those programs from governance. I, I think often committees are dysfunctional in format. It's hard to have meetings over phone. I think in-person does so much better. Um, but there's a tendency at all levels of our governance, whether it's through the affiliate at USHCA, the hunter-jumper specific, or even at our national governing body where when programs are failing, we don't call the herd, we just throw more resources at them. And I think we could call the herd a little bit on some programs and make sure that the resources are going towards the well-received programs that actually help the sport and help the industry. Um, I'm very proud. I have had almost zero involvement except the occasional board vote to approve funds but the emergency relief monies that get sent when there are natural disasters, the horsemen's assistance funds that get sent when someone's really hurt, you know, I might be on the other end of that one day. I mean, that's really good. Um, so there's a lot of good. It, you are a target for sure when you participate because typically within the governance model, if you're vocal, um, you're, that's not well-received often. USCF is much more open about it because we're so many breeds and disciplines. But at USHA, we all do the same thing. So when you have a strong opinion, it, it really might be counter to someone else's very strong opinion about the same thing. 
And so you're always sort of feeling like a nag. And then when you go to the horse show, the very people you've been nagging on behalf of <laughs> usually don't like any of the decisions you've made or how you voted. And, but it doesn't mean it's less important. I, the reason I got involved was because if I was going to complain about how things were done, then I really needed to step up and give my time back and at least have a seat at the table. And, and you know, I, I think it's like voting about the president, uh, complaining about the president if you didn't vote. Mm-hmm. Get involved, right. Get, you know. Um, so that's why I got involved. Um, and currently I'm only on the board at USCF. I'm no longer on the board at USHGA. Um, you talked about the, the Hunter Derbies and, and how that's helped the sport and, and talked about, you know, help, helping or rewarding the, the owners. What what other, why else do you think the Hunter Derbies have been important for the industry? Well, it's uh, spectator friendly. It definitely promoted live stream. I mean, you didn't really see that before Derbies and now you have equitation finals or even just big classes at Horsha's. Um, I think that it has returned the sport to a level of athletic performance that we hadn't seen in a long time. Um, three, six was sort of where most hunters ended and now they can go higher. It's brought sponsors in. Um, and it's given very good horses a role. Uh, I don't think Liza or Jack would be offended when I say this. I don't know that Brunello would have been famous without the derbies. And he's regarded as one of the great horses of our era, and rightfully so, a great athlete and a hunter athlete. Um, so, you know, people might disagree with that, but I, I really think that it's promoted that. It's promoted young riders. The tier system, while many people find it confusing, does promote young professionals, um, which I think is valuable. And it gives people a reason to get out of their neighborhood. You have horses coming from the West Coast, the Northwest, the Midwest, Northeast. They're putting themselves out there against peers from all over the country, not just their zone. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's important? Valuable? It makes us all better. You got to work harder. <laughs> you got to work harder. Safe sport has been a topic of major discussion in our sport recently. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, it has? Um, (laughs) Well, I'm not uh, an expert, and I don't speak on behalf of USCF or anyone else other than me. Um, But I I think in general terms, it's appropriate to say there's a lot of misinformation just about what safe sport the Center for Safe Sport is, who runs it, how it's... I would encourage everyone to go get educated um, off of Facebook. Uh, It's easy for people to think, well, I read this 10 times, so it must... Of course, it sounds like it must be true. And especially when you're passionate and upset about something. Um... But I would say actually go to the center's website, call the Center for Safe Sport. Um, There are people at USCF who have made themselves available via press releases for 
correct information. I hear a lot of bad information about, you know, whether it starts with people thinking that this is a USEF mandate or... Um, which is not. Which is not. No, no. I received a letter from the, I think it was the 117th Congress of the United States of America last spring when it was granted autonomy from the USOC, the U.S. Olympic Committee. And it said, as a director of a national governing body, you will comply. Uh, this is this is out of the hands of any committee or board. It is a new reality. I don't know if it's all being done perfectly or not, but it's a starting point. And um, I have heard people smarter than me say some good things about it. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. I probably should have asked him beforehand, but Jeff Teal and I had a casual conversation last week about it. And he said some really great things. He said, this is hard, but if we can get through this, maybe the next generation has better idols to look up to. Um, I, I heard someone at a horse show recently say, if you, you know, a lot of times one of the defenses to some scenario or a person who's been banned or set down is, but look at all they've done or all, all the accomplishments they have. And they said, if, if you could, I don't want to misquote them, but I think their point was if you take that person's name out of it and you replace it with football coach or a high school teacher and you say all the same things, Yes, they won the Super Bowl. Yes, they were a, a great teacher, but they happen to also be involved in things that we don't think are good. Um, it might give you a little different perspective on it. And it's, it's a new trying time for our sport, that's for sure, and for our industry. And I, I would just caution everyone to self-educate in a in a better way than social media and, and really look at it because I was quite surprised to find out how much process people actually get and I think it could be improved for sure I think it's hard when we don't know why they take action this week and not next week or what it's so hard and frustrating but it's not just horses, mm -hmm. and, and it's, in my opinion, it's not going away. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone needs to be prudent and respectful of their students and their customers and talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of things that are discouraged are reasons that I think customers of mine in the past would tell you they appreciated me. I remember piling four or five little kids in the car to go up to Harrisburg and watch medal finals because that was a goal they had. I don't know if I sh would do that today. Not should I do it, but I just don't know if I would. Right. And I think those parents all thought I was a good coach for having done that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to be a little careful. Right. And it is what it is. Right. And I'm sure it will get challenged 
and improved and altered and you know it's just so early and so new and so frustrating in many ways thank you for listening to practical horseman's podcast you can find the articles that tom and i discussed in the podcast which include a profile and a two-part training article on our website at www.practicalhorsemanmag.com I also want to give special thanks to the podcast sponsors, ADM Animal Nutrition. Again, the link to their website is www.admequine.com. I really appreciate your feedback, so if you have time, please rate and review the show. And join us again in two weeks. Upcoming conversations are with jumper rider Georgina Bloomberg, hunter rider Sandy Farrell, and Olympic eventer Jim Wofford. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening.